Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. I don't believe I've ever met a genuine follower of Jesus Christ that didn't want to go further, deeper in their walk with Christ, greater comprehension of His Word, more fully surrendered to His will, more completely experiencing the Spirit of God working in their life. I don't think I've ever come across a person who genuinely was in a relationship with God that wasn't willing for that in their life. But the problem is this, this sin-prone flesh that you and I still reside in. Gardening can be hard work. It takes a lot of time, effort, and energy to see fruit from the garden. It also takes alertness and awareness of what's going on. Deer, rabbits, insects, all of them would like to steal your produce. You have to keep watch in the garden. But here's the problem, and this is important because this is still the problem for disciples today. In verse 41, Jesus says this, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Say it. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. This week in our summer series, Growing in the Garden, we come to a garden known not for beauty, but for agony. Of course, I'm referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus endured extreme mental, emotional, and spiritual anguish, the place where he was arrested and carried off to be crucified. As we're going to learn today, Jesus asks some of his disciples to keep watch and pray with him in the garden. But they didn't. And because of that, they weren't ready for what came next. What Jesus was telling them to keep on the alert for was for the spiritual battle that was about to come into their lives. Fear, doubt, confusion, anger, all of those things were about to come knocking, pounding at the doors of the disciples' lives. And they needed to be ready. The Garden of Gethsemane is one we enter reverently, but enter it we must. Because today, Pastor Clay is going to show us from Matthew's account some important lessons for us to learn and to apply to our lives today. Thanks for joining us. Now here's Pastor Clay. A few years ago, Greg Laurie, some of you know, he's a pastor in California, but he does these crusades all over the country. A few years ago, Greg Laurie did a crusade here in Raleigh, and dozens and dozens of churches participated in that crusade, including Cross Culture Church. We gave financially, we invited people, we attended the crusades every night. Some of you worked as counselors. Cindy worked actually in their Raleigh office in the months leading up, about the year leading up to uh, having the event here in Raleigh. It was staged at the PNC Arena, which I think it was the RBC Center back then, but it was staged at the PNC Arena, and thousands and thousands of people attended every night. By the way, did you know, I looked this up last night, did you know that the PNC Arena is the 10th largest uh, arena, uh, enclosed arena in the United States? I, I did not know that. There's a little, little bit of what? Fill it up. Amen, brother. It's a little bit of worthless trivia for you, but I just thought I'd give that to you. I came across the 10th largest enclosed arena in the United States, according to Wikipedia, so it must be true. So anyway, the event was held at the PNC Arena for, I don't remember, three, four nights, I don't remember how long it was, but thousands and thousands of people attended. And every night they had, you know, top uh, Christian singers and top Christian bands and all that would sing and do worship and stuff prior to the service. 
and then Greg Laurie would come out and preach an evangelistic message. How many of you attended some of that crusade a few years ago? Several of you, some of y'all did, attended some of that. Uh, Greg Laurie would come out and, and preach an evangelistic message. Well, as I said, several of us were involved in that, counseling, things like that. Well, one night, I was asked to do security for the event. I'm, I'm sure it was my, my stature, my physique, that I just seemed like a natural for that position. I'm sure it had nothing to do with my wife working in the office. Oh, Clay will do it. Just get him to. sure it had nothing to do with that. But they asked me to do security one night for the event. And I was instructed to work backstage. And I was given explicit instructions to be, to be alert and to not let anyone back there that did not belong back there. Don't let anyone back there that doesn't have a, a badge on that gives them backstage access. Don't let them anywhere near the stage. Don't let them anywhere near the green room. They even gave me a special lanyard that said security right on it. So... I was standing back there, I was doing my job, I was looking all security-ish, all bowed up and ready, and this guy comes in from, from some back door of the arena, and I'm telling you, he looks like he has just rolled out of his cardboard box out of some alley in downtown Raleigh. I mean, he is, his hair is bushy and wild, he's his, got this bush, big bushy beard. I think he had an old cap on, I'm not sure. His jeans had more holes in them than Sonny Corleone's car after he was ambushed on the Long Island Turnpike toll booth. I mean, clearly, and he does not have on a backstage badge. Clearly, this guy does not belong back here, and I'm going to have to go security guard on him. Because I have been instructed not to let anybody back there, and he's walking straight towards the stage. Almost as if he has intention to go to that stage. And I, I'm not going to let that happen. So he's walking closer and I, I'm, just, I'm just ready to spring into action. I might, it might get a little rough. might have to take this guy down. But it's the job I've been given and I, and I have to do it. Now, I had heard and loved David Crowder band music. But in my defense, I, I had never seen what David Crowder looked like. I had never been to a concert. I had never watched a video. By the grace of God, just when I was ready to lunge, some guy comes out of the green room and says, David, there you are. You ready to do a sound check? And off they go to the stage. Now, clearly it would not have been good for me to have taken out David Crowder <laughs> and forcibly made him leave the premises. But no one could say I wasn't keeping watch. No one could say I wasn't alert. Today, we enter into a garden that is holy ground. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, it is the Garden of Gethsemane. As a matter of fact, we're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane for the next 
two weeks. But today, we're going to look at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 26 of some events that transpired in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we're going to find in there is that Jesus asked three particular disciples of his, Peter, James, and John, to go a little further on with him into the garden and for them to keep watch, to to keep alert while he prayed. And from that passage, from Matthew chapter 26, we're going to try and and glean some, some, some truths that we can apply in our lives so that we can grow in the garden. It's the whole point of this summer series. And as I've said before, there's not necessarily a connection between one garden and the next garden and so on and so forth. We're just, we're just making our way through a text that takes place in some type of garden and seeing, hey, how does that make application for my life? You can think of it as those of you that are gardeners, that, that grow up perhaps a vegetable garden or something like that. It's like making your way down one of your rows, occasionally finding, oh, that, that cucumber is ready, oh, that, that tomato is, is ready, uh, so on and so forth. And, and picking that fruit because it, it's ready for you to, to take in. In the same way, we're just making our way down the row of the garden, so to speak, and we're looking for ways that we can, can find some fruit that we can apply to our lives. You understand? Matthew chapter 26, we're going to try and look at kind of three different ideas, and time permitting, we'll get through all of those, and we're going to read the text as we go uh, today. But I'm going to start with this, this little statement that we've started each week with and then go into the first division statement, which looks, looks like this this morning. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that Jesus was fully man. First, first lesson that we learn today from Matthew 26 is that Jesus was fully man. Would you say that with me, please? Jesus was fully man. Let me read Matthew 26, verses 36 to 39. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter the two, and the two sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Do you pray with me uh, this morning? Father, uh, again, uh, I just repeat those words. I, I believe that they are true. This is holy ground. All of your word is truth and any mixture of error. It's all profitable for us. We can make application. We can learn stuff. But here in the garden, this garden of Gethsemane, this place where we discover that Jesus was fully a man, is an important passage, an important place in history because Jesus is only a few hours from the cross at this point. And so I pray for each person who's here today or each person that may listen or watch uh, this message in th- this week or in the coming weeks. Father God, I pray that, that your word would have its effect on each of our lives, even as I, I pray that it's had its effect on me as I've been studying this text. And God, may these people, as I often pray for them, may they leave here to, today saying, it was good to be in the house of the Lord. He's worthy and I need to worship him, praise him, and sit under his word no matter what. But, but it was good for me too. It profited my soul to sing praises to God. It was good for me to open his word and to, to see how I could apply it to my life and my situation, my circumstances that are going on that, 
that nobody knows about or, or maybe lots of people know about. Father, just meet us where we are and take us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 36 through 39, we, we dive into this area, that this, this idea that Jesus was fully man. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And it was a very appropriate term for what transpires in this garden. The garden of Gethsemane was an, an olive tree uh, grove on the side of the hill of, of the Mount of what's known as the Mount of Olives. Obviously, it's known that because olives grew on that hill. It was just outside uh, the eastern gate of uh, the city of Jerusalem, walked through the Kidron Valley. It was maybe 15, 20 minute walk, uh, if that, something like that, from the upper room where they've just been now to walk across and out into the, to the Garden of Gethsemane where they're going to spend the night. Remember, this was taking place during what's known as the Passover season. And, and all Jews, if they were if it was all possible, were to make their way back to Jerusalem for Passover. So the city of Jerusalem swelled in population during Passover. Uh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people uh, descended on the city. And finding a place to stay could often be difficult. Jesus' disciples, had, they'd used this before, and they went out to the garden. That's where they were going to, to sleep. And so they go out there uh, to, uh, to spend the night. But as they are there, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to walk a little farther with him into the garden, a little deeper into the grove, so to speak. And he, and he said to them, uh, be awake, be alert, be, be ready for, uh, for what, what's, what's coming. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, I should say that when I say that we learn that Jesus was fully man in the garden, does not mean that this is the only place in Scripture that we learn that Jesus was fully man. Throughout the Gospels, uh, we see Jesus' humanity. But perhaps more than any other place, we see his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his birth, in his miracles, in his resurrection, we clearly see his deity. We clearly see that he was God. And we should never forget that fact. We should never forget the fact that Jesus was, that Jesus Christ was 100% God. But neither can we forget or neglect the, the theologically correct, although incomprehensible truth that Jesus was also 100% man. And now I understand that mathematically that doesn't add up. But theologically, it is critical for a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ was. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He goes a little farther. He leaves the main body of disciples in one place. He takes Peter, James, and John a little farther in. And then he says to them, remain here with me. Uh, keep watch. Uh, the implication is to also to be, to be in prayer. And, and Jesus essentially makes a statement to them. He says, for I am grieved and distressed to the point of death. The truth is, our English can't really do justice to the Greek text in, in this particular case. The idea here is that uh, is a picture of, of, a, of an enormous, a gigantic weight pressing down on, on him, on a person. So great, so uh, large, so heavy is this weight that is literally crushing the life out of that person, so that they, that, that in this case, Jesus feels both emotionally and physically the full weight of what is happening. And, and it, it, was a, it was literally a weight. It was literally the weight of the world. 
as Jesus was now only a few hours away from the cross and having all the sins of the entire world in some mystical way that I do not understand, all the sins from all of human history that ever have been or ever will be committed in some way that I do not understand, and I freely admit I do not understand, but in some way all of the sin of the world, all of my sin, all of your sin was placed upon him, was heaped upon him in that moment, and it was literally crushing him to death. Jesus was fully man. He's feeling the full weight of what is happening to him. And it is, some theologians believe, that it is this, this, this crushing weight in the garden that that's what Jesus is asking to have removed when he says, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Some theologians believe that he was referring to this what was happening to him in that moment in the garden is this weight of, this, of what was coming upon him. Remember, he, he's, he's God. He, he knows what's coming. He knows what's in front of him. He knows the cross is, is before him. Um, but in his humanity, he's feeling this, and it feels as if it's going to crush him to death. And some theologians believe that that's what Jesus was saying when he said, let this cup pass me. He's saying, man, let, let me get it through this. It's interesting, uh, in Luke's account of this thing, in Luke chapter 22, uh, Luke tells us that God, the Father, actually sent an angel to minister to Jesus to strengthen, and it, the text literally says to strengthen him, thereby being able to complete the task that he had in front of him. Some theologians say that's, that's the cup that he was asking to be removed. Some theologians say that it was the, the sin, the actual sin that was going to be put upon him, that if there were any way possible, that that's in his humanity what Jesus was asking to be removed. You know, you and I, quite honestly, if we, if we fess up to it, sin comes very naturally to us, and unfortunately, we are way too comfortable at times in our sin. Would you agree with me? Or is it maybe just me? So it is hard for us to comprehend what it must have been like for the perfect, sinless, pure, holy sinless son of God to have all of the sins of the world heaped upon him in that moment. And that some theologians believe that's what Jesus was saying is that, is that God, if there's some way that the weight of this sin can be removed from me, let it be so. Now listen to me. I am not diminishing or, or negating the pain and the suffering that Jesus endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers. It was horrific. It was more than, than any of us can ever possibly imagine. But just possibly, just possibly, my sin, your sin, placed upon him, was an even greater pain, an even greater crushing weight than even what he would endure physically. Jesus was fully man. Did you know that Jesus' favorite saying, or a reference to himself was the Son of Man? He says it over, he refers to himself as the Son of Man several, several, several times. The phrase first occurs in the book of Daniel, where Daniel uses it as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And it seems to speak both to his humanity and to his deity in that, in that one name. Listen, he was fully man. You need to understand that. Well, okay, well, why does that matter? Let me, let, me just, let me just point to a couple things the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You understand what he's saying? He's been where you are. He knows what you've felt and experienced. Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. The 
early church father origin got it right and there's a lot of things in my opinion he didn't get right but but the early church father origin got it right when he said of jesus that his deity did not cancel out his humanity he was a man you understand what i'm saying to you that that the son of god who's eternally existed didn't just put on an earth suit and, and play a role to or look the part he became one of us He became one of us. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means the fact that Jesus became a man means that positionally, I'll bring it up here, or Tyler will bring it up on the screen. It means that positionally, he could be the required perfect sacrifice to redeem mankind. Mankind is the one that that sinned. Mankind uh, needed a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And so God said, I'll come. I'll do it. I'll live a perfect life as a man, and I'll lay down my life as a man. So it meant that positionally, he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But also, practically, or personally, it meant that that he can identify with the pain, the heartache, the suffering that accompany living in this sin-cursed world. That occasionally, maybe occasionally in your life, you experience some heartache. Maybe in your life, you occasionally experience some pain, uh, maybe some, some suffering. Can I get an amen? You ever have any of that stuff in your life? It means that, that, yes, positionally, he could be the sacrifice, but personally, he can identify. He knows what it is to laugh and to cry, to have joy, to have sorrow, to be hungry, to be betrayed, to be misunderstood, even to die. Jesus was fully man. And that should have an impact on our lives, knowing that not only could he pay for my sins, but he can identify. Listen to me. You do not... If you're here and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you do not believe in a God who is distant and uncaring and far away and uninvolved in your life. You have a God who is personally involved. He's come down. He's, he's, he's become a man. He's, he's invested in your life. And he, he wants to be personally involved in your life. Second idea this morning in the garden. We grow in our understanding that when we are short on discipline, we will be short of what God expects. When we are short on discipline in our life, we will be short of what God expects for our life. Now, let me read some of it as the story unfolds. Continuing on in verse 40. And he came to the disciples, in this case meaning the three that he had asked to go a little farther on with him. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that if, we, if, if there are not disciplines in our life, then our life is not going to be where God wants it to be in our life. Jesus goes off to pray. He's taken Peter, James, and John a little farther in. He goes off to pray. He comes back and he finds them sleeping. A feeling I am not unfamiliar with on Sunday mornings. 
But he comes to them and he says, are you, are you, are you still sleeping? Are you sleeping? I, I, I propose to you that in Jesus' words, there, there is clearly an expectation on, on his part for what they ought to be doing in, at this particular moment. That there's an expectation that they are not fulfilling that Jesus has asked of them. It's interesting in verse 40, and I don't know if every translation would have this, but in verse 40, if you, if you have New American Standard, uh, you'll notice that uh, the word uh, men in verse 40 is in italics. Some of y'all see that? Verse, verse 40, the word men is in italics. That means that, that the word men was not in the original text, that it was added for clarification. Just understand that there was a group of guys there and that Jesus was talking to all of them. Now, I think truthfully, there is a sense that Jesus was talking to all of them. But it is interesting that, that the text specifically says that Jesus said to Peter. It specifically says that he says to Peter. And if you take out that italicized word, uh, uh, just take the word men out, uh, the text would read like this. Jesus literally said uh, to Peter, so you could not keep watch with me for one hour? Do you all remember? If you've read the Gospels, do you remember? It was just a short time before this that Peter had said, Lord, I don't know about the other, the other guys, but I'll die with you. I'll die with you. It's all, I'm telling you, it's almost as if Jesus comes to Peter, finds him. It's almost as if Jesus, Jesus says, Peter, you'll die with me? You can't even stay awake with me. When I was thinking about that, it, 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 all of a sudden rushing into my mind were all the promises that I have made to God at times and not kept. But, but we'll get off of that in a hurry. <laughs> so he, he, finds them, he finds them sleeping, and he, he goes off and he prays again. And he comes back and he finds them sleeping again. Now, let me say this. I don't believe that, well, let me put it this way. I think that it is safe to say that Jesus was not saying, when he said to them, keep watching, keep on the alert. I think it is safe to say that he is not saying that they are to keep watch, keep on the alert for Judas and a bunch of Roman soldiers that are coming. I think it is safe to say that because A, Jesus had already predicted that Judas was going to portray him. He knew that it was coming. And B, Jesus has no plans to run. You understand what I'm saying? This wasn't, this wasn't a ploy. Hey, uh, you disciples, y'all hang out here. Come on, Peter, James, John, come on over here. We'll slip out the back of the garden when the soldiers show up so that we get out of this and they'll take the fall for it. No, what Jesus was telling them to keep on the alert for was for the spiritual battle that was about to come into their lives. Fear, doubt, confusion, anger, all of those things were about to come knocking pounding, really, pounding at the doors of the disciples' lives. And they needed to be ready. They needed to be prayed up. They needed to be walking in the Spirit. They needed to be alert to what the enemy was going to bring against them. And can I just say this? I suspect that they want it to be. These men love Jesus. There's no question about that. I think they love Jesus. I think they genuinely want it to be walking in the Spirit. I think they genuinely want it to be but here's the problem, and this is important because this is still the problem for disciples today. In verse 41, Jesus says this, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Say it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I would dare say there's not a person in this room, not a person watching this message that cannot identify with the reality of that statement. 
The spirit is willing. Oh, but the flesh is so, so weak. And I really believe that that's true. I, I don't believe I've ever met a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, genuine in relationship with him, that was not willing, that didn't, that didn't want to go further deeper in their walk with Christ, uh, gr- greater comprehension of his word, more fully surrendered uh, to his will, uh, more completely uh, experiencing the spirit of God working in their life. I, I don't think I've ever come across a person who genuinely was in relationship with God that wasn't willing for that in their life. But the problem is this, this sin-prone flesh that you and I still reside in that does not want to do anything of spiritual value and fights every attempt that we might make. Am I I just talking to myself or can y'all identify what I'm saying? That this flesh that I'm in that is so easy to jump into sin and so resistant to to doing the right thing or being spiritual or or, or growing in my relationship with God, my, my flesh fights that. My flesh wants to do what it wants to do and it's carnal in its nature and it is not prone to want to do the spiritual. By the way, when Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to go a little farther into the garden with him, it wasn't because he loved them more. It was because he expected more out of them. There's no question throughout the Gospels, you can see that Jesus invested a great amount of time and energy into all of his disciples, but into these three men in particular, he put an enormous amount of investment. And how does Jesus put it? I think it looks like this. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. Listen, folks, there's no question that Jesus had an expectation that he would find his disciples doing what he asked them to do. He'd invested in them, he'd poured into them, and this was something that they needed to be ready for, and they weren't. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not throwing them under the bus because they got sleepy. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know what it's like to get sleepy. I... I, I I know it happens. I see it every Sunday. It happens in my own life sometimes. I understand what it is to, to feel sleepy. I'm not, I'm not jumping on them for that, but I am taking the opportunity to say that unless you and I build spiritual disciplines into our life, our flesh will always fight against it. Our, our, our flesh will always choose, nah, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up tomorrow. Or no, I, I know I probably ought to do I, uh, You understand what I'm saying? You have to build. You and I have to build spiritual disciplines into our lives. And so that if we're talking about a spiritual discipline, whether it's time in prayer, How much time do you spend in prayer? You don't have to answer that out loud. Diving into God's word, a deep dive into God's word, discovering what he has to say to you and what is, how much, how are you doing in that area? Sharing your faith, something clearly that he's told us uh, to do. When's the last time you shared your faith? In some, any way, giving out an invite card, invited someone to church, shared your testimony. How are you doing in that area? You understand what I'm saying? That if we don't build disciplines into our lives, it just, it, it just doesn't happen by magic because my flesh doesn't want it. So, I'm standing here telling you that you need to build some disciplines into your life. So what does that look like? What would some disciplines look like? I don't know if this will help you or not, but I'm going to give you a little outline. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. But I just, something I just came up with that I hope will help you a little bit. If you say, all right, I, I know this needs to happen in my life. Start with this. Start with desire. It's got to start there. It's got to start with a desire. And here's what I'm saying for you to do. Don't work desire up yourself because it'll last about as long as, you know what I'm saying? This is something that you, you need to ask God for. Ask God to give you a desire 
to be the man, to be the woman that he has called you to be. Ask God to, to give you a burden for spiritual disciplines in your life. Ask God to give you hunger for his word. Ask God to give you a burden for the lost and, and, and a desire to share your faith. Ask God for desire. Not that he's going to win that desire. Not that he'll take away your flesh. Your flesh will always be there fighting against it. That's why we need discipline. But, and I know this to be true, if your desire is strong enough, it can overcome your flesh. It really can. So start with desire in your life. Say, God, give, give me that desire. Maybe even today, maybe even right now, some of you are in your mind, you're just, you're just praying, God, I, I need that desire in my life. Second, decision. Make a decision. Punctilier in time frame. Drive a stake down into your life saying, today, at this moment, I'm making a decision to build spiritual disciplines in my life. Uh, be specific. I'm a, I'm, I'm, today, I'm making a decision to spend more time in God's word. Uh, I'm making a decision to share my faith more. I'm making a decision to begin to tithe. I'm making a decision. All, whatever the, all these spiritual disciplines are that we need in our lives to be spiritually full and walking in the spirit, all these things that we struggle with, and, and I think we'd all say that we struggle at times with them, make a decision. And I would say this to you. Make the decision to yourself, and if at all possible, make it to others. Declare it to others. And one of the reasons we give an altar call every Sunday is for the opportunity for you to come down and say, you know what, today I'm making this decision. There's something about making a decision and letting other people know about it that kind of holds your feet to the fire, if you understand what I'm saying to you. And it's okay to hold your feet to the fire. I love you enough to say, hey, a few weeks ago, you, you came forward and said you wanted to start sharing your faith more. How's that going? What steps have you taken in that direction? So if at all possible, declare it to yourself, declare it to others, but make a decision. Say, this day, this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start making a decision. How does the uh, uh, ancient Chinese proverb go? I think it goes like this. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Decision can be the first step toward building spiritual disciplines into your life. Make a decision if you've not. Or make one again if you've fallen off the wagon, spiritually speaking. Third, develop. You need to develop a strategy. You need to develop a plan for the spiritual disciplines that you want to put into your life. Listen to me. You can have desire, fantastic. You can make a decision, fantastic. But I'm telling you, if you do not develop a plan for how you're going to develop spiritually, if you do not develop a plan, you'll still be talking about it two days from now, two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, you'll still be talking about it. You understand what I'm saying? I've been there. I've done that. Man, I, I really need to, six months later, hey, how's that? Yeah, I know, I really need to, you, you need to develop a plan. Okay, what does the plan look like, Clay? Again, I don't know if it helps you or not. Let me give it to you. Plan needs to be realistic. It needs to be realistic. One of, the, one of the worst mistakes that people make when they become convicted in this area about, you know what, I'm not reading God's word. I'm not praying. I'm not sharing my faith. I, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. All these things that God's expecting of me, I'm not doing those things. One of the first or worst things that happens when people get convicted about that is they set unrealistic expectations on themselves. I'm gonna, from now on, from this day forward, for all of eternity, I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. every morning, I'm going to spend an hour in God's Word, I'm going to spend an hour in prayer, and I'm going to hand out 50 Ivite cards a day from now on. If you can do that, fantastic. Praise God. But I'm just telling you, most of us are going to fall short of that because of family responsibilities, because of work responsibilities, because of, of time restraints and all those kind of things. So what I'm saying to you is you need to set realistic expectations. You need to set goals. Listen to me. You need to set goals that are attainable but expandable. Because as you grow spiritually, 
so should some of your disciplines. If, if, you, if you start out and say, you know what, I'm going to start spending 15 minutes a day in the Word of God. 15 minutes a day. A year from now, you may be ready to say, you know what, I can spend 30 minutes in the Word of God. And I can spend, you understand, you understand what I'm saying? Well, as you grow, they can be expandable, but make them attainable initially. Set, set some goals that are realistic. Second, uh, set goals that are repeatable. You need to be able to do it day after day after day. Now, that's not to say that, that it needs to become monotonous or boring. That can happen. Don't let that happen. You can change things up. You should change things up, right? Change the passage of Scripture that you're, that you're studying. Um, uh, bring worship music into uh, your, your time with the Lord and, and sing different songs every day. Uh, include a, some, whoever your, like your favorite Christian author is. Uh, add, add some of, some of his uh, a book into your, your time with the Lord. Um, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, Dr. J. Clay Stevens, uh, uh, Max Licato, whoever, whoever it might be. You understand what I'm saying? There can, be, there can be variety in it, but it needs to be repeatable. You need to get up and do it again every day. Certain amount of time in prayer, certain amount of time in the Word of God, a certain amount. So you need to develop a plan that is repeatable. I can do. I, okay, this is realistic. I can do this, and then you repeat it, and you get up tomorrow and you do it again. And sometimes you fail, and you will, and you get up tomorrow and you talk to the Lord about it, and you do it again. You understand what I'm saying to you? It needs to be repeatable. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that it needs to be rewarding. You should see some fruit from this. You should see. The Spirit of God bringing greater conviction on your life. You should see Him warning you more clearly about temptation before it actually comes upon you. Things like joy and peace and wisdom. You should begin to experience some of that in your life as a, as a result of, uh, of putting this time in. There, there should be something that is rewarding about this time. Now, number one reward is that you should feel closer to God just as a result of... Because that's ultimately what this is about. It's not about gaining knowledge. It's not about... Da, da, da. It's about drawing closer to God. You understand what I'm saying? But then the other components, yes, you'll grow in knowledge, you'll learn all those things. It should be rewarding to do this in your time. And then the last part that I would say, the last thing I would add to this is do. Folks, just, just do it. Just do it. Stop making excuses and start making progress. You understand what I'm saying to you? There's not a one of us in here that are not guilty of making excuses at one time or another about this or that or well, I know I need to do this, or I, but, but, but da, 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 da. At some point, we have to stop making excuses and start making progress because God has expectations. It's okay to say that God has expectations on our life as a follower of Jesus Christ because he wants what is best for us, and so he leads us towards that idea. Okay, got it? One more idea this morning before we close, and that is this. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that God's ways are not necessarily our ways. Let me read, I'll just read to verse 54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. His name was Malchus, by the way, one of the other gospel accounts tells us. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? I think it's John's account that tells us that it was Peter that is the one that drew out his sword. Matthew maybe is trying to not shame Peter's battles. I don't know. Peter does, Matthew doesn't mention who it is. John said, oh yeah, it was Peter. It was Peter. 
You know, right? Big surprise. Hot-headed, impetuous Peter. He was sleeping when he should have been praying and alert. He was caught up on his sleep, but he was caught off guard by the circumstances that came rushing into his life. And he responds, listen to me, because we didn't get out of it. He responds in fear, in confusion, and in anger. He just jumps up, pulls it out, swings. By the way, I, I, I don't believe there's any way that Peter was that good a swordsman that he could just pluck off an ear at will, Right? He's swinging for the fences, baby. He is trying to take that guy's head off. And Jesus, who had been, dis- been demonstrating his humanity in the garden, also demonstrates his deity because another one of the gospel writers, I think Luke, tells us that he performed a miracle right there in the garden by, by putting Malchus's ear back on, by healing his ear. And Jesus says, <laughs> essentially, I'm paraphrasing, he says, Peter, man, do you think that I, I just can't speak the word and my father's got more than 12 legions of angels ready? This is, this is, this is not a... See, this was the problem for the disciples. They, they couldn't get past the idea that in their mind, the Messiah was, was a war, warrior king. And when he came, he was going to put the smack down on the Romans. He was going to throw them out of Jerusalem. He's going to throw them out of Israel. He's going to establish his kingdom and rule from, from Jerusalem from then on. Now, to be clear, the Messiah will someday set up his earthly kingdom. But it wasn't going to be that day. What they didn't understand, what they didn't know is that God's ways are not their ways and that there was going to have to be a cross before there would be a crown. Do you understand? God's ways are, are not our ways oftentimes. I read the story about a boy who was coming home from school one day and he came across a cocoon still attached to a stick that had fallen, I guess the wind had blown it out of the trees or whatever, and had fallen on the sidewalk. And he carefully picked it up and he carried it back home and he put it in his windowsill. And every day he watched that cocoon carefully to see what was going to happen. And the day finally arrived when, when the, the larvae, now becoming a butterfly, began to, to, to tear the cocoon and began to, to work to make its way out of it. And this was a fascinating process, and the boy was just amazed as he watched this. But there came a point where it seemed to be taking an inordinate amount of time, and where the boy thought, man, something's wrong, and, and, and I need to help here. And, and he took his pocket knife out, and he, and he just care, very carefully slit the rest of the cocoon uh, away, and, and out came this butterfly. But rather than this beautiful creature that could, could fly off, its wings were shriveled up and useless. You see, what the boy didn't understand was that the insect needed the struggle of the cocoon to develop its wings so that it could fly. He thought he knew what was right. He thought he knew what was the right thing to do, but it wasn't the right thing to do. He just couldn't understand it. He just couldn't see it. And what I'm saying to you is the same thing happens in our lives. The struggles that you go through in your life and that you beg God to take out of the way, the things, the circumstances, the things that, that are not comfortable at all, and, and, and we, 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 we look for a way to get out of it, we turn this way or do that thing or try and bring this person in or try and ask God to intervene in this way. And whatever, what we don't understand oftentimes is that God is trying to develop your wings so that you can soar as a set free child of the living God. And we're trying to get out of it. His ways are not our ways. How does, how does the prophet Isaiah, how does God say it through the prophet Isaiah? One of my favorite passages, Isaiah chapter 55. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
You don't have a God who is far away and distant and uncaring. He's a God who can identify with you, has identified with you, has died for you, and wants to be intimately and intricately involved in your life. You have to build some disciplines in your life. There's areas that you're weak in. You have to build those into your life so that you can, so you can meet God where he wants to meet you and take you where he wants to take you. But you will find in the process that he will not always do things. Matter of fact, he will rarely do things the way you and I think that he should do. Well, God, it would just be easy if bam, bam, bam. And God's like, I know. <laughs> and you and I have, here's, here's the deal. Here, and then we'll close. You and I have to decide. Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? In, in, in all the stuff of my life, am I going to trust God with, with my future? Am I going to trust God with my relationships? Am I going to trust God with my morality? Am I going to trust God with my finances? Am I going to trust God with, with my, my career? Am I going to trust God? Or am I going to make decisions based on what I think or somebody else thinks is, is going to be best in any particular situation? It really comes down to being that simple. Am I going to believe and trust God, this God who, who became a man and died for me? Or am I just going to believe that I know better? I can do it better. It can work out better. I, I, I know what his word says, but, but, I, but I, I just think it's better this way. I'll just leave you with, with these profound words from Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you'll serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living... For us today, we would say, whether we're going to do it the world's way, we're going to do it this person's way, we're going to do it the way we think it's best, the way that, that, that this happens to say this or that, or are we going to believe that maybe God knows more than I do? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What an important reminder for all of us today. It's so true that God's ways are not our ways. God became a man so that he could pay man's sin debt to God. Who could ever imagine that God would do that for us? From our perspective, we think we know what God should do in a particular situation in our lives. But from God's perspective, He knows exactly what needs to be done. And often, that is very different from what we had in mind. Pastor Clay also reminded us of the importance of spiritual disciplines in our lives. Jesus had an expectation that Peter, James, and John would be alert and in prayer for the spiritual battle. But as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's why building disciplines into our lives is so important. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. 
And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice real. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.